we'd like to welcome to the stage um, Jane Ann Terzillo and David Giffels, both uh, very accomplished authors, and we're going to get into what they write about and, and how you can um, get a copy of some of their books, which are incredible. Now guys, we only have two microphones, so you guys have to share, play nice. Um, I will start with Jane. Jane, tell us a little bit about yourself and some of the books you've read. Uh, well, I've, I have uh, written six books. Uh, four of them are out there on a table for sale. Uh, I'm a true crime historian. Um, this is Wicked Women of Northeast Ohio. It's about ten ladies who did not play by the rules. Uh, some were murderesses. Is anyone uh, in this room on that? No, you know, I hear that all the time. You'd be surprised. People go by at, at, at uh, uh, um, book shows and they say, is my wife in there? Or, you know, is my mother in there? I have some or, suggestions. We'll know. talk after. Well, well, you know, so, some woman, went, uh, some woman want, women want to know whether it's a how-to. And, uh, <laughs> you know, so that gives me ideas. You know, maybe the next book. Um, and then uh, Ohio train disasters. Um, I, I'm, a, I'm a train buff. I love trains. Uh, I go to train shows. I even have a train set up in my house. Um, and uh, those are train wrecks, some of the worst from all over Ohio. One of the worst, which today, uh, well, it, it happened in uh, 1876 in Ashtabula. Uh, it is still today one of the worst in all of the United States, the Ashtabula train wreck. Um, okay, this one is uh, uh, train robberies, and most people think about Jesse James, and they think about uh, uh, the Wild West, and Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, and you know, riding along on their horses beside train, or you know, trains and jumping off their horses. That didn't happen. Um, but uh, the, uh, the first peacetime train robbery was in the state of Ohio, and the last great train robbery was in the state of Ohio. So we're number one in a lot of things. Yes. Um, this one is my latest book, and I'm quite proud of that. That was uh, uh, nominated for an Agatha, and um, uh, it is uh, has eight unsolved murders and two unsolved disappearances in it. A couple of the stories are, I like a lot because they're love gone wrong. Um, and, uh, now, do so, wives see this one also as a how-to book? <laughs> I never thought of that. I never thought of that. So, so, so there, there seem to be a lot of scandals in Ohio, a lot of unsolved yeah, yeah, crimes, yeah, a lot of train it. robberies. We're, we're a very spirited state, what can we say? <laughs> I don't know if we should be proud of that or not. <laughs> so, um, so now, if David, if you tell us about some of your uh, books, we can, we can show the audience and give us a little synopsis of these. Okay. Um, that's my most recent book, The Hard Way on Purpose. I'm David Giffels. I'm from Akron. Um, and that is my most recent book, and it's a book of essays about um, coming of age in Akron in Northeast Ohio um, as part of the first generation of people who didn't know um, this region as an industrial powerhouse, um, but rather as, as the Rust Belt. So, um, so just as I was kind of um, sort of coming into my own as a young man, um, is, is kind of when the Rust Belt era, the, the industrial collapse occurred. And so, so it's about growing up in a, in a place that's losing its identity or has lost its identity and committing to it. And um, I've lived here all my life and 
and sort of finding what life is like in a place that more people were leaving than coming to. And, and I can relate to this. I'm, I've lived in Akron my whole life and I saw a lot of my peers move away in high, after high school. You yeah. know, why did you stay behind? And they would ask me that question. And I, I would have to uh, put this out there that while trying to find what the new identity is for Akron, you've helped shape a new identity for Akron, becoming a real prominent voice. I mean, this book got recognition all over the country. New York Times, I know, was writing about it. And it's, it's very well regarded. So I, I would definitely uh, recommend reading this book because you really do typify a lot of how Akron's feeling. I think that's why a lot of people connected with it. And you've helped a lot of people outside of Akron to understand what Akronites are all about. So, kudos. Thanks. I also predicted that LeBron James would come back. Yes. So I just want to <laughs> be on record. And look what happened. Um, Not only did he come back, but he got a championship. If you can predict stuff, what's like the next? What's the lottery numbers for the next big one? It's, well, I, I only, you only get one magic lamp moment in your life, and I already spent it. So sorry. Okay. <laughs> um, so Belt uh, Publishing is here today as well, and they have done. They've published this really great series of anthologies, each based on cities in the Rust Belt. Um, the first one was the Cleveland anthology. Um, I wrote a piece about a miserable Browns game in that book, but um, that, that book and all of the books, they, there's a Detroit one, there's a Pittsburgh one, there's a Youngstown one, there's a Buffalo one about to be published. The Akron anthology will be published in October, and there will be um, a big uh, launch event at the um, Akron Public Library Auditorium um, in October, and I don't remember the date. It, but it's the 18th. October 18th, uh, of I, I course. I only know because yes. I have this card in front of I me. Actually, I knew you were going to say that. I actually do still have yes. clairvoyant powers. It so, still works. Um, so that some of us will be reading from the book. I think there will be live music. It's going to be great. But, yeah. He'll be joined by Jason Segedy, Joanna Wilson, and Chris Drabig yes. uh, for this reading at the library on the 18th. And that's another of Belt's publications, Dispatches from the Rust Belt. That's a compilation of pieces that were published in, in um, Belt Magazine's uh, online magazine. So they, they do a whole series of books, and they're really, like, they really do a great job just in, just in terms of the production and also the content. They're really excellent. And the, these are, like, all of these anthologies are not just, I mean, it's not just, like, rah-rah sort of boosterism. They're really um, deep thoughtful books about the realities of living in this place so there's you know um, I mean there's a piece by Jimmy Israel that I still go back to in the Cleveland anthology that really challenges um, the idea of what it means to be black in Cleveland in a way that is uncomfortable and I love that about those books that so they you know some there's nostalgia but there's also you know like real important social um, concerns that are addressed in those it's it's very wide-ranging Absolutely. Um, I'm going to ask both of you this question, but maybe you can start, David. Um, what are some of the challenges to publishing books in a digital world? I mean, we, we have such an immediate gratification system set up where you can just go to a blog and publish something. And I know that the book publishing process is a lot more patient and may not you know, have the same fast-paced deadlines as maybe a newspaper or a blog or what have you. So what, what are some of the challenges you face in publishing books? Um, well... It's a, it's a little bit weird for me because I left, I was a newspaper journalist for a long time and I left newspaper journalism at a time when it was um, at a difficult moment between balancing the, the idea of a print uh, written product and a digital written product. 
And part of the reason I left was because of the challenges of that. I didn't know if I wanted to make a second half of a career adapting to something that um, was going to be trouble. Um, but of course, like I jumped from that into the book publishing, commercial book publishing world of, of New York publishing, which is right now in crisis because um, I left the Beacon Journal to commit to um, teaching at the University of Akron and, and also writing books and, and my publishers are in New York. And when I left, you know, sort of borders was my main kind of like model, economic model. And by the time the next book came out, borders didn't even exist anymore. And when we were doing the contract for the book that I'm finishing now, there was a couple things I was asking for through my agent. And he's like, well, we have verbal agreements, but they don't want to put it into the contract because by the time this book comes out, we don't know if Barnes & Noble will be in business anymore. So um, it's, uh, it, it, it's worrisome. Um, I, I, I don't think books will stop being published, um, but I know like the way we address eBooks even now um, that, that authors do, it, it's, it's a much different, like when I did um, All the Way Home, which came out in 2008, the idea of the eBook was just kind of an appendage to the commerce of that book. And the next book is going to be, you know, right there with the print model. Sure. And, and All the Way Home, for you out there, the audience, is about your house, right? Um, yes. You've got a fixer-upper yeah. <laughs> old house that you spent a lot of time and energy right. working on. Same question, Jane. How do you feel the digital age has really changed how books come out, how people read books, um, how, how it's just changed the the whole process of it. You know, um, actually I read something not too long ago, and I don't remember whether I read it in the newspaper or whether I read it online, um, that uh, people are actually reading more paper books now than they are, uh, they, they enjoy the experience. I know I certainly enjoy the experience of holding the book in my hand rather than uh, reading it on a tablet. Um, it, it, you know, it's kind of it, uh, like Dave. Um, my first books came out, and uh, the you know it was they came out in paper. The, there there were no. Uh, um, and the third book came out, and there was yeah, well maybe you know we're doing this, and then you know it did. It came out. Uh, um, it it came out on uh, digitally. Uh, none of my books that I have published now will, will ever go to audio, I don't think, simply because they have pictures in them. Um, and, but I was really surprised to, uh, uh, to see my books come out in um, e-books. Publishing is very hard right now. I know uh, uh, some people who have published as many as, many as 50 books, uh, Berkeley is cutting them. They're, you know, they're cutting down to, like, from 38 authors to five. So, you know, it's, it's a problem for us. Do you, do you <laughs> right? have to become self-reliant on the marketing? I mean, is that all on you, you know, as the author, probably you know, more it than just, it's ever it, been? It just depends, because I've noticed with my, uh, with my publisher, and I'm traditionally published, uh, at first my, public, my first publisher was Arcadia. And then uh, a bunch of people broke away from Arcadia and they started the History Press. And I then published 
uh, three books with the History Press. Well, now Arcadia has uh, uh, bought the History Press, so they are back together again. Um, and I forget what you asked me. <laughs> Oh, I just asked if the marketing has been more the, on your oh, okay. shoulders. So what I what I was going to say what I was going to say is is that um, the uh, editors change a lot, uh, the uh, publicists change a lot. I had one publicist publicist that did oh just tons of stuff for me. I loved him. I just loved him. I had him for about a year, and then he got another job, and now I have I have no idea who my publicist is. So I do a lot of marketing myself. Yeah. Okay, and I'm sure both of you have to rely on social media to do these things. Oh, and, we do, yeah. Um, stops just like this. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to switch gears, Jane, and ask you a question. Um, I noticed that a lot of your books dealing in darker subject matter, crimes, yes. um, wicked women, and, and whatnot, what, what draws you to that subject matter? I don't know whether I dare say it on <laughs> this. Um, you know, I don't want to say that I have a twisted mind or anything, but uh, um, I, I think it's I think it's awesome. So if you say you have a twisted mind, then I do too, because I I your books seem for me seem so interesting, just that side of the world, and that you can write about it and like have full books about just disappearances and murders that were unsolved. I think. I, you could call me psychotic. I think that's really cool. <laughs> but, well, thank you. I think thank a lot of people agree. I, I that's write, why I write they for sell. people like you. Um, thank you. you know, I, I was a crime reporter. I was one of the original owners of the West Side Leader, and I did the police and fire news. I did the police and fire news for a smaller paper before that. I have a degree in criminal justice. I but what I really love the writing is hard work. That's hard work. What I love is the research, and it's kind of like. The research is kind of like detective work, and I like following the clues, and uh, the, you know, I I like looking at coroner's reports and and uh, uh, police reports and old manuscripts and old letters, and I like looking at the pictures and and finding the pictures. Um, it's you know, it's the detective work I guess that really calls to me. That's great. Yeah, and I think a lot of people have that similar interest. Um, there's a show that was recently on called The Night Of on HBO about a kid who's picked up for a crime that he didn't commit, and it shows the legal system and how the wheels of justice can be uh, quite unforgiving to yeah, people right. who didn't do anything wrong. Right. Um, so for those who just walked in, this is uh, I'm Chris Miller. This is Ryan Dyke. We're from the Spoils of Akron podcast. Woo! We are interviewing authors Jane Ann Terzillo and David Giffels. Uh, David, I have a question for you. Um, this kind of goes back to something we, we were discussing earlier um, about how you know, you've know you been here your whole life in Akron. You've seen Akron through laws and, and through a time when I can remember when downtown Akron was kind of a wasteland <laughs> there's really nothing here um what what has kept you here in akron because someone of your status could easily probably go live in new york and you know live somewhere else and but so what keeps you in akron um well it's weird because when you write about that subject um it seems like whatever you've written that's how you thought for your whole life but when i was you know like in my early 20s and about to get married um there wasn't a reason to leave yet. I, I went to the University of Akron just because it was there and I could and met my wife there and our families are here. So the, the first reason we stayed was, was because of that, because it's where we were from and we didn't have to leave for, because 
you know, our, our career goals were low enough that we, they could be met in Akron. Um, and, so, uh, and, and so then, but then after a while, after you start to grow up a little bit and you start to see that your friends left, and then you start to hear the reports from, from afar saying, well, yeah, I moved to Chicago and I got a, my really good first career job, but my commute is an hour and a half every day and my mortgage you wouldn't believe. And, and, and we would be like, well, my commute's like five minutes and our mortgage you wouldn't believe because it's probably what your down payment was. And, and so then you start to feel like, um, you know, you start to see what a life here can be um, that, that has really great elements. And, it, and once you start a family, Akron's a really good place to raise a family and it and, um, has a lot of amenities that are good for that. And then, you know, like when we, when we bought that house that was on the verge of being condemned and we committed to saving it, then you start to feel, you start to recognize that if you stay in a place like Akron, um, you, you start to realize that you're needed there. Like if you rehab a house in a city like Akron, you've, you've made a tangible, measurable um, contribution to the, the maintenance and resurgence of that place. And I've said many times, especially to younger to students who are debating whether they should leave, you can have a great life in, in Chicago, for example, and it's a great city, but Chicago doesn't really need you because there are 50 of you lined up to take your place if you, if you choose not to commit. Akron needs you, and, and, if, and once you've been here long enough, you can see that. I'm sure like people who come to an event like this um, are, are feeling a sense of civic pride and also a sense of scale, like that they're not like just one in a crowd of millions, that there's actually some you know, like meaning to I really agree there. with that, Dave. I think that's, I've never heard that thought process or, or like that metaphor. I really like that, that you are correct. If you go to Chicago or New York, there's 50 other of you trying to do exactly what you're trying to do. But here in Akron, you're one of two, three, something like that. So I, I agree, that's, that's really cool. As a younger person, the younger, youngest person on this stage right now, I agree that um, Akron, I think, is going through this really cool like renaissance with the young and the old like mixing together and doing these cool events like this. And I, I, I just seen it from a younger pair of eyes. I agree. I think it's just so cool that you can make a living here in this city doing what you want to do. I, I agree. I think it's pretty cool. I really love the LeBron James letter that he the the essay that he wrote for Sports Illustrated when he announced he was coming back because he. he like one thing um, I think that people from the Rust Belt have is a very strong BS detector. And if he had just been Absolutely. paying lip service, like some people I think accused him of, um, and this is just a way to, to sort of manage this, the, the problematic decision and, and the coming back, we would have recognized it. But when he said many of the same things, this is a place that really needs me, and this is a place that made me who I am, and it's a place where I, I have an identity that I can't have anywhere else. That resonated, I think, with us because we recognized that he was saying, you know, things that we would be saying, you know, in a much smaller context. Right. It, it, we, we forgave him for leaving, <laughs> you know, and, and I, I agree, totally agree about the BS detector thing. I think if someone here in Akron is honest and works hard it, it, within that realm of honesty, people will accept you. You know, even even with all your flaws, even with all of our flaws, I say as a collective, um, and and that's the one main thing. So I've seen people come to town who are very good at what they do, 
but they they weren't honest and people basically could drive you out of town if that's the case yeah. I mean the the common acronite you know so I, I totally agree with that um, both of you come from journalism backgrounds um, and what's that Oh, go ahead. Oh, um, both of you come from a journalism background, uh, both from um, the Beacon Journal. Uh, wait, Jane? No, Westside. Westside, sorry, Westside. Um, what is the future of journalism? With a lot more stuff going to online, with newspapers going to more online audiences, what do you two feel is the future? Jane, go ahead and you can start first. What do you think the future of journalism is? Can I add that before you answer? Um, specifically, I would say hyper-local journalism, like neighborhood-level journalism, which seems to be uh, always in a state of flux in Akron. Um, you know, we have bloggers, we have, um, there's a citizen journalism program that I've, I've run for a number of years, the Akronist, and, um, you know, we have just a lot more individuals have voices, and how does, how does the role of a journalist fit into all that, that whole climate? You know, that's a hard, that's a hard question. Um, I love the newspaper. I love the Akron Beacon Journal. I don't care what, you know, people from outside of Akron say or outside of uh, Summit County. I don't care if they call it the, what was it they used to call it? Yeah. I don't care if they call it that. I love the Beacon Journal. And I just, you know, that's the first thing I do after I let my dog out and feed him in the morning is I get a cup of coffee and I read the Beacon Journal. Um, I love the West Side Leader. I read that, you know, once um, uh, w once a week when it comes comes uh, in my driveway on when late Wednesday afternoons. Um, if we didn't have, I, I firmly believe, if we did not have, and I'm going to say something that's maybe kind of uh, political here, if we didn't have the Beacon Journal. I don't think we would have saved the University of Akron. Uh, I think that. Uh, because we had the Beacon Journal, it was an avenue for a lot of people, um, both you know, students, alumni, um, uh, uh, staff, and uh, uh, academic to get together and buy ads so that they were full page ads so that people could actually see these ads in this size instead of that size. And I just think that makes more of an impact. Um, so, so you're so saying I, I, that... You know, it's I think it is important that we keep our newspaper alive and I think uh, r rather than, uh, you know, on a, on a small screen. Uh, yeah, I agree. Newspapers needed in any community, especially one that can act as a watchdog and keep the you know Absolutely. the other yes. people running the city and and check and, and and keep that dialogue open. So yeah, so you're saying that the the newspaper has the platform to reach more people, more people and to and rally more people. Okay. And, yeah, and I, and I I think it has a bigger impact than uh, uh, you know than Facebook has. Okay. Um, well, first of all, I think you have to distinguish between journalism and the, whatever the business model is. Sure, because absolutely. I, because I think local journalism, local journalism will exist for as long as high school sports exists. Because somebody Saturday morning is always going to want to know if their high school team won. And only local journalism, whatever form it's delivered in, can give that kind of news. Or, or if you heard a gunshot, 
right. around the corner. Or, or who was married or opiates right. and yeah. So then, so then the question is the delivery method, which is a completely separate thing, you know, because journalists ultimately are independent of the business of selling their product, um, or they should be. Uh, so, so Jane's point, though, like the University of Akron issue was just as well covered and I think received just as much scrutiny and attention from the Devil Strip, yeah, I which, totally was, agree. which yeah. was doing that work primarily online. It wasn't their print edition that was doing it. So Jane's right, there's an impact of those full-page ads with all those names and for people who read that old product, that had a visual impact. But for those of us who were also following that, that coverage in the Devil Strip and that really good investigative journalism, that was journalism being done with a profit margin that I'm sure is not what the old gray lady profit margin would look like, but it was, but it was being done with the same scruples and, and validity of any good journalism. So that's why I say journalism will exist, local journalism will exist, and the business model will figure it out. I come from the old model, and you know, I, I left because I didn't. I, it wasn't that I didn't want to adapt to it. I, I just felt like this is going to be, it's going to take a generation. Um, but I think what I'm seeing now is that younger people whose primary language is digital, um, are the first generation of those people are, are entering their, their real journalism careers now, and they're the ones who are going to really kind of reinvent not only the, the use of technology, but also the, the way to make a profit from it. Right, and and you bring up the devil strip, which is really interesting because they're going with a print model in a all, almost an all digital world now, and they have been hugely successful in Akron. Yeah. People love the devil strip; they love picking up that physical copy of that magazine and reading it. So um, th that's a testament for print is not dead. You know? No, I, but I, when Chris Horn was starting that, you know, the joke, and I made it too, was Chris, who starts a print? Local print magazine in 2014 or whenever that was. The other thing um, but that I, but they, they really have married their digital content with their print content really well. The other thing I love about the Devil Strip, and I don't know if anybody else has had this um, happen to them, is I'll go to like a restaurant I've been going to like my entire life, and the Devil Strip is sitting right there on the counter. And I'm like, wait, when did you guys get this? Oh, we just got this last week. I'll go to a store that I've been going to again my entire life. And I'm like, wait, when did you guys get this? We just got this last week. That, that's one thing I love about the Devil Ship is that it's it's expanding. It's it's everywhere. I, it seems like every place I turn, it just shows back up. I mean, I think that's it's really interesting that again, like you're saying, who starts a print newspaper magazine in what 2012? Chris Horn is here somewhere. I wish he, he was is here yeah. hearing this, so his head would be growing. We're and... we're, uh, we're we're giving him praise. Yeah. Um, and and also, not everybody can pull that off. Chris can pull it off because he's a good journalist and he understands digital. Um, and, and like you said, how to marry the two products. Um, also, I, I, as an addendum to what you both said, I think that there will always be a need for those authoritative voices um, from journalism. Even if we don't have huge media conglomerates in the future, I think we still need those voices of authority. And that's someone who's a trained journalist, who spends time uh, honing that skill, and, and not everybody can do that. You know, we, we, a lot of us get our news aggregated through Facebook and Twitter and social media from other users, basically other people, the lay, the lay person. And I, I think for some news, that's okay to get in that manner, but I, I think we're, we're always gonna need that, those authoritative voices. And, and you two are a part of that because you're writing nonfiction, you're both journalists, 
uh, by trade, you know, at least started your careers that way. And, and so I, I think there's definitely a room for everybody, but specifically that. One thing I will say that I think is really important is when I got to the Beacon Journal as a young, pretty green reporter, I was immediately both challenged and mentored by people who had been there for decades and had were, were part of a, a, a mass of ethical standards, uh, standards of how journalism is supposed to be done, and there was just no question, you just wouldn't do anything that was outside of those standards. Um, and you were taught, but also you recognize that you're upholding something that's that's much bigger than you. And that's, that, because of the way newspapers, print newspapers have been, um, not even eroding, just collapsing, um, there's a really tenuous uh, connection in that long timeline that's, that's in danger because as soon as those traditions become disconnected or seem less important or different than what's happening online, it's, it c could happen in a moment where all of a sudden the idea of making things up or not checking facts or who cares if it's misspelled or things like that um, could happen in a moment. I mean, we're seeing in the political process right now a normalization of things that Donald Trump is doing that shouldn't be considered normal. But you wonder if the next election, like all of a sudden things, you know, like we don't show our tax records because we have decided you don't need to see those or, you know, things that wouldn't have, and that you can make fun of disabled people and still be taken seriously as a political candidate. That was unheard of six months ago. And now, you know, and so it's in the same way journalism can lose its tradition really quickly, especially in a changing to a different, completely different delivery model. Right, and that, that's important to a functioning democracy and a free, a society of free information, a free exchange of information. If those journalistic principles are eroded, you know, it, it, it could very well, you know, a local politician could just pump stories into the local newspaper that are completely false and people will believe it because the newspaper is publishing it. Big businesses and corporations can can use the media as propaganda vehicle for for thing, unethical things they're doing. So you can't put a price tag on that. That is so incredibly valuable to us as a free society and it's something we all need to support and uphold. So it, whether that's you know getting a subscription to your local newspaper, whether that's really questioning things that you read on Facebook, because we already see what happens with misinformation on Facebook. You throw a bunch of words on a picture and call it a meme and throw it and spread it around and people, oh, that's that's true, that quote happened, you know? Yeah, that's, exa that's exactly what I was gonna say is, uh, when you go on Facebook or you go online, you don't really know what you're reading is true. There's a whole list of these uh, um, publications, I guess you'd call them, that are just, you know, thrown together by uh, uh, whatever political party. So you don't, and, and unless, you, unless you're, you know, educated toward um, what you're reading or what you're interested in, you don't know what you're reading is, you know, is, is true. Hi, Jane. Um, uh, uh, Dave as well. We, we got about five, ten minutes left, and I want to wrap up with um, talking more about you guys' books, your newest ones. I believe, Jane, your newest one is Wicked Women of Northeast Ohio, correct? No, actually, no, my newest one is uh, no, um, Unsolved Murders and oh, Disappearances. Got it. All right, I got it. Um, 
Is there any uh, stories in here or any of the chapters that to you really stood out among the rest um, that you could share with the audience, maybe give them a little sneak peek or something like that? Not too much, so they can okay. still go get the book. Okay. Um, yeah, you know the one probably that stands out the most to me uh, is the last chapter in the book, and it is uh, about a 13-year-old a girl that went missing in Canton. Um, in 1963, and uh, her name was Anita Drake. She was one of eight children, and she was on her way to uh, uh, what we would call the Dairy Queen, and after school one day, uh, right around this time, actually in October, and um, there has never been so much as, uh, you know, uh, a piece of her clothing show up. Uh, she just completely disappeared. Um, the same thing in Orville in uh, 1928, uh, a little boy disappeared. Um, and not so much, he was, uh, this was around Christmas time, and his, uh, he was playing at, in the schoolyard, and at dinner time he was on his way home, and he walked down an alley and was never seen again, and not so much as a button ever showed up. So uh, to this day, Nobody knows where either one of those kids uh, went. So those, those were two stories that really kind of hit me the most. And, and David, um, you know, t tell us a little bit about this new book you're working on, if you're able to share any information about that. But it's actually a book in which I confess to an un unsolved murder that oh. happened in, in Akron. But uh, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Well, we, we have police officers waiting right outside the door. <laughs> I just wanted to give Jane something to write the next book about. So This whole I panel was a ruse to solve help. that mystery. It's actually just, you're actually being filmed. This is for the MTV show Pranked. They're, they're right outside. Yeah. They're about ready to take you away. You've been catfished. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Um, so the new book I'm just now finishing is, it's a strange sounding premise, but my father and I, um, it's, it goes, it sounds like it, it's one of James, my father and I built a coffin together. Um, and it's, it, it's the story of, we, this started out kind of as, it, it's, it's a long story, which is why there's a book about it. Um, but uh, it started out as sort of, this is something we could do, and then next thing we knew, we kind of were doing it, and it kind of became this weird father-son project, but along the way, um, in, in the three or four years that this project has taken place, um, my mother and my best friend both passed away, so, and, and I turned 50, so it's, this, it, so it's really a book about um, grief and loss and spending time with your parents while you have them, and, and fathers and sons, and, and turning 50, and you know, um, it's not a dark book, but it's definitely um, a meditation on those things. Sounds excellent, yeah. Um, and so this, uh, this anthology, what, what is your essay in the new uh, Russell um, anthology? So, so the Akron anthology, I wrote the introduction, and um, it's, uh, it's just sort of about why stories are important and why telling stories are important for, um, for what a community means and what a community is. And, um, and there's, I, I write about the blimp and the idea of the, the blimp the Goodyear blimp is this shared experience that that we share uniquely as as Akronites. Um, like even you know, like if you go to Maslin, the blimp doesn't mean the same thing as it means here. And for those those kinds of um, experiences, the importance of those, and the fact that this anthology captures some of that sense of unique sense of place and belonging and so forth. 
Okay, um, and, and also your other books are for sale the hard way on purpose and uh, all the way home, so I'd encourage you... can you get them at Borders. Borders, yes. Yeah, Borders bookstores <laughs> anywhere. Just knock on the empty building and yeah. hopefully someone will have a copy. But um, Amazon, you, you know, davidgiffels.com. Um, and they're, yeah, they're selling books right out here on the, on the table. Um, and I, I would like to ask you before we wrap up here, and you might have an, another question too, but what, what kind of things do you guys read? I mean, you probably spend a lot of your time writing. Um, when you do have the time to read, what are some of your favorites? I, I like uh, mysteries. I, I, I read mysteries mostly. Uh, I read some nonfiction. Um, just depends upon where my interest. What's the last one you remember reading? Uh, I read a book by, um, well, I'm going to tell you two books that okay. I really, really liked. One is um, by Robin Yoakum, and he is an Ohio uh, writer, and it's called A Brilliant Death. Uh, and it's, it's, a, it's a kind of a coming of age with a, uh, you know, with a murder in it. And then another one is, uh, the last one I read was uh, Alan, by Alan Eskins. Oh, and I'm not going to be able to remember the name of it. Um, but it is about uh, a stolen identity. It, I think it's his, his newest one. Um, I can't remember the name of it. But um, but yeah, that's what I that's what I like. I, I would also say that my books are at Amazon, and uh, they're not at Borders. Um, <laughs> they're Barnes and Noble, um, and uh, in Hudson at uh, the Learned Owl. And yours too. Yeah, and all the great Cleveland independent booksellers as well, Max Bax and Logan Berry and um, Guide to Culture. So Dave, what kind of books do you like to read? Um, oh man, I mean, it's, you're asking this, I, I've had like a really like decadent summer of reading, but which is everything from, I read the, Romance <laughs> the, the first volume of the six volume uh, a semi-autobiographical Norwegian novel by Karl of Knausgaard called My Struggle which is this heavy, dense, existential Norwegian book, to the, the Replacements biography that came out this summer. The, so it's all over. Um, but usually, usually in, the, in the academic year, um, I have this amazing privilege of being able to decide what I want to read in the coming year and assign it to my students. So I get to read the books I want to read and then talk to interesting people about it and get paid for it. So. Last question I want to ask, and uh, on the, if you guys ever listened to the Spoils of Akron podcast before, we love asking why Akron, but um, I think we've talked a lot about why Akron, why you guys are writing, not just about Akron, but about Ohio and about um, that subject matter. matter. But one thing I'm, I want to ask, and uh, this is great because we're here at Farm and Flea Market, um, is just what is one or two things that you this city when you think of Akron that you think of, you know, is unique to this city that you like to go out and do, any restaurants, any places that you go to think, to write? Just anything that, for the people out in the audience, can use as their own inspiration? Uh, well, uh, two quick things. One of my favorite catchphrases about Akron is, I always say, Akron has everything, but it only has one of everything. Which is to say that, like, there's there's one, you know, like, like one good independent record shop. There's actually two, and there's one good ice cream place, but there's actually two. Um, but but this idea that Akron has a scale that that is that you can you could almost like see the cartoon version of it um, being alive. So I like the fact that Akron feels like you feel special when you're in a place like that, and there's not eight others of them. But 
Um, but like, you know, like this is kind of a Captain Obvious thing, but the parks, I love to use the parks. And I love the idea that still people who aren't from here are surprised that Akron is a city that's surrounded by a national park. And um, so just to be able to take advantage of that without barely having to leave my front door is awesome. I think a lot of us take that for granted. I mean, a lot of other cities do not have the wealth of right. number of parks within walking distance that we have here. So, how about how about you, Jane? Yeah, I was going to say the park that uh, uh, we have uh, not only Akron's park or Summit County's park, but we are surrounded by uh, the national park. I would like to say also our library, Summit County, uh, uh, Akron Summit County Public Library is one of the best in the country. And uh, I would like to say our uh, museum, our Akron, um, of course I used to work there, so that's, maybe that's why I like it so well, uh, the, the uh, Akron Art Museum. And I just like the feeling of, uh, of community. I mean, this is community right here. You know, people are out, uh, you know, on a nice day and uh, uh, talking and getting together and I, I just, I really like that. I saw some bicycles out there, I saw people walking with dogs, and that's the way that a community should be. In just about five minutes, they'll be reading poetry from this very stage. So that's what's coming up next, open mic uh, poetry reading. Um, thank you so much, David and Jane. And, thank you. And, and please buy their books. They're both amazing authors. Um, they're for sale right here at the table out front, Amazon.com, DavidGiffles.com. Um, do you have a... JaneTerzillo.com. So um, thank you again, both of you, and uh, please um, give them a, a, a round, a warm <laughs> round of applause. And you, you can hear this uh, on the Spoils of Akron. We'll post it tonight, actually. Spoils of Akron podcast. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you, everyone. Liz.